Let's pray. We desperately need that tonight. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you uh, that we get to open up the Word. Lord, uh, the preparation has been done, and we trust you in the delivery of these truths, and we look to you for the uh, direction in our uh, conversation. Um, Lord, I pray that in some of these chapters that are a bit more stark, that um, it appears you're aiming to get our attention, and I pray that <clears throat> that, that would happen tonight. Uh, I pray um, that we would be shaken where, in whatever way you see fit. Um, I pray that you would inform us. Lord, I'm thankful that we have such a, a true story in the Word. I'm thankful that we don't have an Old Testament that we have to flip through and just kind of fill in the blanks ourselves, but there's a lot of details shared. Uh, even the things that we would otherwise leave out had it not been breathed out by you. So, Lord, we trust you completely, and we pray that you would guide our time. We pray that you would allow us to be um, <clears throat> ready to hear the truth, to engage the truth, to walk in the truth. We truly believe that it is a very real thing to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we pray that you would make that happen tonight by the work of your Spirit. We can plant and water, but only you give the growth. And we're thankful for that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Who read ahead this week? Anybody? Anybody read ahead this week? For those of you who didn't read ahead, um, we're in for a doozy. Um, as we pay attention to the details, some of these things that we have, uh, these truths that we've gleaned in the, in the previous chapters, one three-part thing is that as we pay attention to the details, as we worship God in the midst of the details, and as we share the details with others so that they might worship God in a like manner, sometimes it becomes evident that the details to us can be offensive or disturbing. Um, in these final chapters of Genesis, the main focus is God's work through the life of Joseph. But chapter 38 is a really stark, seemingly purposeful, abrupt interruption with a focus on the life and lineage of Judah. Now, for those of you who have read ahead, you know that this study uh, will be a challenging one because there are some of the most particularly explicit things in Scripture in this chapter. I get to stand up here and read it out loud to everybody. Um, however, for those of you who have not read ahead yet, or if you can think back to your thoughts before you read chapter 38, what do you think about when you hear the name Judah? Before chapter 38. It's your time growing up in church. When you hear the name Judah, first thing. The Lion of Judah, who is Jesus. That's important. Any other thoughts? All right. It'll be even more interesting than I thought. Revelation 5.5 uh, states, 
And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that we can open the scroll and its seven seals. We're referring to Christ here. And you would think that anyone's name who's listed in that same sentence is Christ, particularly in the area of lineage, this better be a pretty upright dude, pretty solid person. Matthew 1, verses 2 through 3. You don't have to turn to these, but I would encourage you to write them down in your notes. Revelation 5, 5, Matthew 1, 2 through 3. And on really through most of that chapter, it starts off saying, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez father of Hezron, and Hezron father of Ram, and so on and so on, and on to Obed and Jesse, and David and Solomon and Hezekiah, and eventually Jacob, then Joseph who married Mary, gave birth to Jesus. Turn to Psalm 78. We're in Genesis 38, keep your finger there, but turn over to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 has been described as a psalm to instill awe in us and to make sure that we don't lose our awe. Uh, it starts off in the beginning and telling, of the, uh, telling the coming generation the things that God has done in the past, the things He did with His people early on in Genesis, the things He did in the Exodus, the way that the, His people continually turned against Him, and He would raise up a new generation. He killed an entire generation of Egyptians, and it's these ups and downs in, in Psalm 78 that help us to not lose our awe. And at the end of Psalm 78, in verse 65, it says, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. Now, Joseph is who we're spending the next 13 chapters on in Genesis. He's really important. It says, He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, and brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand, with an upright heart and a skillful hand. That's the David that God drew out from shepherding the flocks to oversee and shepherd his church from the tribe of Judah. Go back to... Genesis 38. We know that when we speak of Christ, we ultimately speak of the offspring of this Judah. And we know that Israel proceeded and grew. It's split into a southern and northern kingdom, one named Israel and one named Judah. So just from the previous couple of chapters in Genesis, particularly Genesis 37, what do we know about Judah? Just from Genesis 37, last week we talked about Joseph, and Joseph had these dreams, and he went to his brothers and were like, hey, I had this cool dream where my sheaves were like this, and yours were like this, and, and then everyone, the sun, the moon, stars, everyone was bowing down to, to me, and my sheaves is not very bright. Um, and then we saw the brothers took, uh, decided to take action on that, and uh, one of those brothers is Judah. So what do we find out about Judah? What could you deduct from chapter 37 alone? Deduce, deduct, whatever. 
Was he a good brother? No, he was a bad brother. We'll shorten that up. Yeah, he, he did not. Um, he did not take up for his brother. Um, Reuben tried. Uh, he was one of the guys that said, let's, uh, let's throw him in the pit. What about son? Is he a good son? No. His dad is mourning the death of a son who didn't actually die, and he's one of the brothers comforting dad in this hard season, even though they know where he's at. So he's not a good brother. He's not a very good son. So let's see if maybe he's a better husband, father, and father-in-law. Maybe. Genesis 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Harah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and uh, she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Sheila. It's Sheila. I looked it up. It's not Shayla. It's Sheila. Judah was in Chezib when she bore uh, him. Okay. Judah is a citizen of God's kingdom, correct? Okay. What does he do in these verses that seems less than appropriate for one of God's children? These verses should trouble us. He's one of the 12 tribes. What does he do? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things. Go ahead, and one at a time, what were those? He takes a Canaanite woman, and if we know anything about the Canaanite women, they're not good brides. Uh, incessant urge to merge. <laughs> incessant <laughs> urge to merge. Nope, but we have a new title. Um, yeah, he, he essentially leaves home. He abandons home. He's one of God's chosen children. It is, um, he is specifically designed to carry out what God has told him to do for God's glory. And what he's done here is he's left home. He has, uh, in short, he strays from the family. He finds a pagan friend and a godless wife. This is what a lot of young men do when they go off to college. A lot of times you can grow up in a Christian home and you go off to college and you find your pagan friend who you can be sinful around and not feel guilty. And y'all can hang out and he's not going to call you out and say, hey, I don't think God would like that. He's going to be like, yeah, let's do that. That's cool, whatever. And, uh, and he found a, a wife who um, isn't going to make him feel guilty either about the very sinful desires that he has. They get married and they have three kids named Ur, Onan, and Sheila, all boys. Um, and in Genesis 24-3, a few things that I want us to note about the whole Canaanite marriage thing. That should be something that jumps out of the page. It's kind of a stark, wait, he married a Canaanite. That seems weird. Um, Genesis 24-3, again, you don't have to turn there, but you should write it in your notes. Abraham sets a precedent that it's not okay to marry a Canaanite. So Father Abraham, where this whole thing narrows down, we got this Genesis 1-11, through it's kind of this bigger picture of creation and movement. We see some things with Noah, and then it... It begins to narrow, particularly in 12, to Abram, who gets the new name Abraham. And then um, 
we see that Abraham sets the precedence, not okay to marry a Canaanite. In Genesis 26, Esau took wives from the Hittites, two wives, that's not good either, and made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Y'all remember that? He took two Hittite wives and made life bitter for them. We can only imagine what that would be like. And in 28 verse 1, it states, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. It seems like taking a Canaanite wife is a bad idea for the Israelites, for God's children. In summary, every generation since Abraham has made it clear that it's not God's design to marry those who have no value for God, particularly the Canaanites. In doing so, you'll be unequally yoked. That's a problem. Why is being unequally yoked a problem? Spiritual conflict? What, what does that spiritual conflict look like? Yeah. Yeah, there can be a, hey, the Lord says we need to do this. And if you're unequally yoked, the other may say, nah, that doesn't sound very appealing. I mean, you would imagine what a Canaanite wife would say when he said, the Lord says this, 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 and this. And the Canaanite says, I don't think so. That's not very appealing. And in fact, that's going to really hinder what I want to get done. Look at verses 6 through 7. And I will warn y'all, the words that we'll be reading shortly are shocking. This is God's breathed out word. This that we're reading tonight is what we need to be equipped for every good work. It's very easy to uh, try to apologize and, oh man, this is God's breathed out word. If it was up to men who feared other men, these are the kind of chapters you would skip. But because God's breathed out word is profitable for reproof and for correction, that the man of God may be equipped and competent for any and every good work, we need this chapter to understand robustly our faith. We need this chapter to understand what God's design is, how His purposes work, how they play out sometimes, and we need to be able to not make the same mistakes as well. Verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's a pretty big verse. He was wicked, and so God did what? He killed him. Okay. Tamar, it, all the names kind of sound like unisex names like to me in this whole section. It's like, who's the man or the woman here? All right. Tamar, woman, chosen by Judah, man, to be wife of firstborn Ur, man, wicked man. However, God struck down Ur because he was wicked. Does this make anyone uncomfortable? That's our God that we're talking about here, not just some random God. That's our God. Are you concerned that our God would do such a thing? Do you all think he still does that? Was this just the Old Testament God? Do we see any New Testament examples? Y'all think any? I know this is Sapphira. Yeah, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Do y'all think he would do this today? Okay. Seen a bunch of people say yes, but no one really wants to speak up. I knew a guy. He was a big jerk. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, there, there's many stories that I've heard, and they're usually shared in like a, wow, that's weird kind of way. But if you can read between the lines, you're like, that's not weird. Um, I saw him do it before. Um, that person was wicked, and um, they hate the Lord, and they get in the way of his purposes, and their days were numbered before they breathed their first breath. A few realities to glean from these verses that are stark realities that should cause us to stop and say, wow, that's a pretty big deal. First, not everyone goes to heaven. That's probably a weird thing to include in a Bible study. Like, well, that's not very hopeful. Well, here we, we need to realize that. We're not just guaranteed. Oh, if I do this or say this, bam, everyone goes to heaven. No, that's a reality. Not everyone goes to heaven. Another reality is not everyone gets chance after chance after chance after chance to repent. If you have opportunity to repent, do so. For us, the time to repent and follow Jesus is right now. God uh, can and does end life as He pleases. In fact, He's numbered our days before we breathed our first breath. Turn to Romans 2, verse 4. Keep your finger in Genesis 38, but I think it's worth turning to. Romans 2 verse 4 says this, now think about Ur. Ur was wicked. Ur was fairly young. He he was likely not even out of his 20s, if that. And uh, he was just struck down, just dead. Probably very hard to explain. They couldn't take him in and do an autopsy and say, well, it appears as though there was this obscure thing. No, everyone just saw him young, in the prime of his life, married, recently married, and then just dead, and he was wicked, and it was known. Romans 2 verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? What do y'all think it means to presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Take advantage of? And how does that play out? What does it look like to take advantage of his kindness, forbearance, patience? Yeah. 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 Just one again. Any, oh, whoops. Uh, very sorry. I repent. Oh, my bad. Oh, very sorry. I repent. Oh, there we go again. Very sorry. I repent. There's a point in Romans 1 where it says he gives you up to, well, I'll just turn there, um, to the, uh, since they saw fit, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. That should be a stark reality for us. For those who are in Christ, your hope only is in Christ. If you keep going to the same sin again and again and again and again, don't expect you're never going to sin anymore. We're, we're called to put sin to death. It's a battle that you will, you will be in until you die. But you put it to death and you fight. You don't dabble in it. You put it to death. You kill it. But if you keep giving way to a debased mind, there's something in Romans 1 that says there were some who did not see fit to acknowledge God, and he just gave them up to the debased mind. You don't have bad thoughts all the time because God keeps you from having bad thoughts. Those thoughts can be wicked, perverse, ungodly, and if he takes his hand off of that, you just have those thoughts. You don't stop sinning just because of your own strength. You don't stop having those thoughts just because of your own strength. 
The Lord causes that in us by the work of His Spirit, and then we submit to His, the work of His Spirit. Now, here in Romans 2, verse 4, we have a little more light shined on it. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. What's the difference between repentance and saying, I'm sorry, again and doing it, again and doing it? Okay? Yeah. Turning away and pursuing holiness. One commentator noted that err, which you could actually break down the wording and it sounds like error, which is appropriate, um, was intolerable in the sight of God. Intolerable in the sight of God. Unworthy to be sustained by the earth. But the vengeance of God was so clear and remarkable in the death of Ur that the earth might plainly appear to have been purged as from its filthiness. Wicked guy. God struck him down dead. He's our God. He can do that. In the following verses, what we're going to find is that little brother is not much different. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife. Judah said to Onan, his other son who's not dead yet, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, you may be thinking, I did not know that was the duty of a brother-in-law. Um, what we're dealing with here is something that's known as leverite or leverite, whatever, however you want to say it, marriage. If you will again keep your hand in Genesis 38 and turn to Deuteronomy 25. I'll explain this, and after explaining it, it doesn't get any clearer. <laughs> this is, uh, obviously, when we're studying our Bibles, and we're importing our senses, and we want to really know what's going on, when you hit things like this, you're like, I don't get it. I've never heard that before. So he has, Onan, Onan's brother Erg died, Tamar didn't have a baby yet, so Onan's supposed to go and make babies with Tamar. That's exactly right, by God's design. Gen, uh, Deuteronomy 25 Verses 5 through 10 says this. <laughs> if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man, 25 verse 5, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. So there's this picture that you are betrothed to the family. It would make you think. I like the brothers. Um, not be married to family, uh, not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her. Yes, that is what it means. You feel, does that mean? Yes, that's what that means. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Okay, we'll get clearer here. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife... Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> and she shall answer and say... So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. You too will have your sandal ripped off and spit in your face. And the name of his house shall be called Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. 
That sounds funny to me. Um, in short, Onan does not want his sandal pulled off. That's what we're getting at. The purpose is that there are no barren, they don't want to have any barren branches in the family tree. When you look at the offspring of Israel, you want to see a family tree with fertile, robust branches of offspring and health and blessing because multiple children are a sign of blessing. And so they don't want to have this one branch that's just dead because Ur died. And so by law, what they're saying is, well, you saw it there, um, uh, he does not want to perpetuate his, his brother's name in Israel. The point is that the nation would, would be robust and that there would not be a family tree branch that dies, essentially. And so that is the role of the other brother. Jesus actually uses this as a teaching point in Matthew 22, where they come to Jesus and they're trying to kind of trip him up and they say, well, there was a girl and she had a husband and he died and then she had babies with the brother and he died and then the other brother, seven brothers. Gee, must be bad luck. But seven brothers, and uh, they were saying, well, what's, who's her husband going to be in heaven? And Jesus uses that to explain that this marriage that you're talking about is a temporal thing. You do not understand. Heaven is not about these things, and, and, you're, and you're misinformed, and you're focusing on all the wrong things. So this thing was a known thing, not to us necessarily, but it was a known thing. And uh, it was even something that Jesus used as a teaching point. So the question is, will Onan do what is customary and choose door one? Or will Onan refuse and choose door two? Turn back to Genesis 38 verse 9. (laughs) But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Apparently, Onan chose door number three. This is no longer a matter of custom. And it's really awkward to read in front of a group of people. <laughs> by, not simply, by not simply refusing to fulfill this duty that he has, the duty of lever at marriage, we find that Onan, like many men today, are all about sex, but not about marriage or children. And that's a problem. It's not God's design. He wants to have all the fun with none of the effects. And by the indication in in this verse particularly, this happened multiple times. said whenever it would happen, this is what he would do. So it wasn't as though it was this one time, I hope I, I don't really want to do this. It was, oh, I'll enjoy this, but I will not give my brother offspring. This is wicked. We'll find out in the next verse what God thinks of it. Uh, Mark Driscoll makes a good point. He says that marriage, sex, and babies go together. And to the degree that you see them separated, you will see the perversion of a culture. When you see um, those things separated, you'll see a culture that is not walking according to God's design. When you see a lot of sex with no marriage and babies, that's perverse. That's backwards from God's design. When... um, even in, sometimes in marriage, you can see people who just absolutely refuse to have babies. Infertility is a very different thing. I'm talking about people who get married. This is kind of a new theme. Where they get married and they're like, man, I like my life. I like this dual income. I like being able to go on trips and I don't need a kid to trip me up. That's a real problem. I'm not talking about infertility. I'm talking about a conscious decision to say babies are not a blessing I do not want to fill my quiver. In fact, I don't even like quivers, and I want to go on a vacation and not be hindered. 
That's what that is. And to the degree that you see those three things separated, you'll see the perversion of culture. So rather than discussing what we think about this verse, rather than me asking if you have any questions about this verse, uh, let's consider what God thinks about it. Look at verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Tamar, 0 for 2. Um, so Ur is put to death, and Onan is put to death, because they were wicked in the sight of the Lord. I hope that pieces of Scripture like this cause us to sober up in our minds. He died. What he was doing, probably in his mind, he's like, man, this is great. This is fantastic. All the fun, none of the effects. I'm really enjoying this. You want to try again? I'm going to do the same thing, but you won't know. This should sober us up. He died. He was arrogant and did what he did when the death of his brother was recent because his brother was wicked. There was no regard for Ur was wicked. I better not be wicked because God killed him. He just did what he wanted to do. This should sober us up. Our culture is so flippant about sexual freedom and perversity. It's so common for men and women to live this life where it's just the norm. We go out on the weekend, this is what we do. We'll do the same thing next weekend and maybe go to church on Sunday. That's perverse. That's not okay. That's not God-honoring. That's hypocritical. Onan sounds like one of the men of Shechem. Remember the Shechemite men? Who in turn sound a lot like some men in our culture who treat women as prizes to be won and quickly discarded. This should disgust us. Men who read this chapter should be like, no, that is not the way it's supposed to be. Christian men who read this chapter. In fact, this is so common that there are many women, uh, many women have sadly uh, given way to the thinking that if they can just find someone to sleep with them, they will be loved or at least they will feel loved. I mean, you might be sitting there thinking, that's ridiculous. That's pretty common. Pretty common. We do not live in a culture that is way different than that. What Onan does here has nothing to do with love. Tamar is actually a mourning widow, and Onan takes advantage of her. In short, what we can see here is that more offspring for Ur, who's dead, means less accolades and less inheritance for Onan and his offspring. You see that? It's you go perform the duty that you're supposed to perform. And he's like, no, I don't want to because then I got to split my inheritance from that would go to my kids, got to go to my dead brother's kids. And what's the point in that? If, if it's just about you and looking out for number one, to look out for number one. Sad thing is there was no inheritance to be had because they're both dead. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. <laughs> For he feared that he would die like his brothers. You know why? He's probably like his brothers. He feared he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Um, this sounds really harsh, but it's actually pretty customary, um, even though the circumstance is really weird. You've got two guys who are dead, one who did a wicked thing in the sight of the Lord, one who was just evil and wicked. We don't know what the particulars were. It was enough for God to decide to end him. 
Um, but Tamar is now a widow of two husbands, and Sheila is left. But if he's anything like his two older brothers, there's a very real concern to uh, Judah that God might take him out too. Because a lot of times when you've got two boys that um, are not um, fearing the Lord, uh, a lot of times that third boy will just do what the other two boys do. It's pretty normal. You can see it in any household. If you see, you can see patterns um, from generations. Uh, so there's a very real concern that God might take him out too. So Tamar is instructed to go and wait for Sheila to grow up. Hey, Sheila's just a boy. He's not old enough to get married, but uh, you're betrothed to the family. You go to your father's house and wait for him to grow up. She is without a husband. She is without children. Also, she's no longer a virgin. So betrothal to another man would, be, uh, would not be realistic or customary. So if you're thinking, why didn't she just go marry another family where the guys aren't wicked and die? Um, that's not customary. And, and it's not realistic because she's no longer a virgin. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Now, was Judah's wife a God-fearing woman? No, she was likely godless. And it doesn't appear that Judah's doing much in the way to lead his household well. Um, verses 12 through 14. Um, so Judah, uh, she was, Judah's wife, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, uh, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Harad the Adulamite. Here's Harad the Adulamite again. Uh, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. Now, you can assume that Tamar kind of had someone saying, hey, will you let me know when he's going up there? She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of, uh, to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up. Shelah is a man. Uh, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now, Judah's wife has died. He has mourned for a period of time, and he went to see his pagan friend. Tamar, realizing that she's been deceived, turns to thoughts of revenge. That's what's happening here. Tamar is saying, no longer do I have these thoughts and hopes of marriage and children. I'm turning my thoughts to revenge because I'm realizing Sheila's old enough, and I have not been given him in marriage. And that's not fair. She wants a baby. Um, this sheep shearing time, I did a little bit of studying on it. I thought it was weird. Like, they went up to shear the sheep. I was like, why is that included? Um, I did a little bit of research on it. Not a whole lot, but this is a fairly rural setting, uh, largely agrarian. And evidently, when it was time to shear the sheep, it was a time where a lot of people would come together in a particular place from a lot of different places. So I heard one pastor um, refer to this as like Mardi Gras, where you got people from all over coming to be crazy in one place for whatever reason, and it gets out of hand pretty pretty easily and pretty regularly. That, that was one thing. Um, I don't know how valid that is, but I could see it. I, I could see it given the context, given the way the family works, given the, the, the way that it is actually included. Um, sheep sharing time was like Mardi Gras. That's a weird note. Look at verse 15. When Judah saw her, I mean, consider these verses. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? This just gets worse and worse. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. It's kind of funny. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. 
So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and putting on the garments of her widowhood. So far, there really isn't much redemptive about old Judah, is there? Bad brother, bad son, bad father, bad husband, bad father-in-law, all-around dirtbag of a guy. In these verses, he shows horrible judgment. He, like Esau, gives way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal consequences. Oh, look, a prostitute. It wasn't even that we see that he went to seek out a prostitute. It was he was walking. Oh, look, a prostitute. That's how it's portrayed here. Similar to David, I guess. Just Just a picture. So he gave way to the solicitations of his flesh without regard to eternal consequences. There's a few details we need to consider in this horrible transaction. First, the young goat. Uh, You probably read that and thought, that's awkward. I've never heard of that. Um, A young goat would actually be the price of a high-class prostitute. So to say, I will give you a young goat is to say, I will pay you top dollar. Uh, More on that later. Uh, The signet, the court, anyone uncomfortable? Uh, they get hot in here. The signet, the cord, and the staff, um, this, again, bad judgment. Um, the signet, the cord, and the staff would be the equivalent, I was trying to think of this, it would be the equivalent of giving a stripper your license and your wallet. I don't have any money. I'll be back later. The implication here is um, uh, you can have whatever you want. Just give me what I want. Signet, cord, uh, staff, that's fine. You give me what I want, I'll give you whatever you want. That's fine. That's flesh. That's carnal. That is not sober-mindedness. That is not, let me weigh out my thought and my answer and make a good decision here. No. It's so fleshly. She conceived. Don't miss that. Then she puts her widow clothes back on. This is the equivalent of having your work clothes and your club clothes. There's a certain way of dressing that can communicate, I'm available and I'm willing. And if you're a Christian woman, I would encourage you not to dress like that. Because just by her attire, she went from being perceived as a widow to being perceived as a whore. And not just perceived as a whore, a whore. Does that sound harsh? Because it's really supposed to. Important point, nothing that they're doing is okay here. Uh, It seems weird to have to say that, but as I was reading through this, I had this inclination to go, well, he's a widow. His wife died, and I could see the bad judgment there. We can't go there. It's very tempting to try to justify things. I know of a woman who watched her husband die a slow death of cancer. That's horrible. I mean, that's horrible. We're talking months of him just laying in the bed, slowly dying. Very slow death. He was one of the best guys I've ever known. She changed during the process and ended up quickly marrying another man just to have someone. It's not okay. It may seem reasonable if we try to justify things, but it's not justifiable. It's not reasonable. This wasn't just a lapse in judgment, and we can't go there. What they've done is wicked. Both of them have turned from Godward purity to selfish impurity and perversity. 
Essentially, Tamar will stop at nothing to get a child and to get revenge. While Judah seeks fulfillment in carnal and fleshly pursuits. And it was, he so wasn't even paying attention that he didn't realize it was his daughter-in-law. He's mourned the death of two of his sons with this woman. And he didn't recognize her. Because all he was worried about was one thing. He didn't recognize her. Oh, my son Ur, you're his widow. Oh, my son Onan, you're his widow. She's just a whore to him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is bad, bad judgment. It doesn't excuse him, but it does need to be noted that he did not know it was his daughter-in-law. It's not an excuse, but it needs to be noted. Look at verses 20 through 23. Now, it's even crazier. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, okay, this is, you've got your pagan friend, now you go send your pagan friend to do your dirty work. Hey, dude, here's a goat. Uh, Can you go settle up uh, with me, for me? Take the goat. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Uh Uh-oh. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at 8 a.m. at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men in the place said, no cult prostitute's been there. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Okay. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. (laughs) Okay, Judah. You got your head on square there. Let her keep that. We'll be laughed at. You see, I sent a young goat, and you did not find her. Okay. Um, Thank you for the recap and the play-by-play of what happened with the goat and your stuff. Um, That's weird. A cult prostitute is like a modern-day equivalent of a high-end call girl. See, um, prostitution is something that we just like to think of as dirty strangers on a dirty street in a, in a dirty neighborhood, and um, it's dirty. But, I mean, there's a high-end market as well. I mean, th- there are places now that, that you can call and you can, you can find exactly what you want. And, oh, would you like an educated prostitute who can carry on a good conversation? We can do that. You want to take her to dinner with your business associates? And then afterwards, it's, you know, whatever. We can do that. You, you take this wicked, filthy sin and you try to make it look uh, fairly respectable. I don't just hire any prostitute. I want an educated one. That's so wicked and perverse. Here, a cult prostitute was the equivalent of what we would, we would see today as a high-end call girl. She was sacred by a cult standard. Okay? She was referred to as sacred by a cult standard. It should make us squirm to use the word sacred. But it's by a cult standard. And she served her pagan deity through prostitution. We thought she was a cult prostitute. <laughs> well, that doesn't make it any better. You thought she was someone who was sacred according to a cult tradition who was serving her pagan deity through prostitution. That, that, that doesn't make it more noble. You're not noble. You're filthy. They're troubled at the fact that she's not there. It is ridiculous when you actually think, picture this Adulamite walking around with a goat on a leash asking for the cult prostitute. Hey, uh, guys, I got this. Go- Have you seen the cult prostitute? The goat here. It's ridiculous. It is laughable and makes your stomach turn a little bit. And in verse 23, we see a theme repeated. 
You see in verse 23, and Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or she'll be laughed, or uh, we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. He's almost like, oh, our story straight? I sent the goat. When there's no repentance, one sin will lead to another and you find yourself living in the fear of getting caught. To the carnal man in this situation, uh, one, one commentator mentions, lighter is the loss of money than of character. Now, consider how we're judging character here. Lighter is the loss of money than of character. Remember, the concern was not that he slept with the prostitute. The concern was that he didn't pay her. Judas saying, hey, I do not want people to think the wrong thing. I pay my prostitutes. That's what he's saying here. Oh, yeah. It's going to come back around. He's, it, what he's saying is, let her keep those things, because I'm a man of my word, of integrity. Because if, if he goes to try to retrieve those things, he looks unfair. So it's not so much a matter of sleeping with a prostitute. It's a matter of um, he doesn't want to be seen as the guy who doesn't pay. We'll look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. The implications are she committed prostitution. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Disgusting. That's what he did here. Onan was a hypocrite. Judah's a hypocrite. Onan said, I will do this, and he did something else. Judah is a hypocrite. She did what? That ungrateful, ugh, burner. This is not symbolic language. It was actually set her on fire while we watch her die. How disgusting her acts have been. You think of the scripture of the, do not remove the speck from someone else's eye when you have the log in your own eye. Burn her. Wow. Look at verse 25. It gets really interesting. As she was being brought out to be burned, they're marching her out. Dishonor, prostitute, pregnant prostitute, marching her out to burn her. Not just act like they're going to burn her, they're going to burn her. She was being brought out. She sent word to her father in law By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Uh, could you do me a favor? Could you please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff? That's whose baby I'm carrying. Could you do me a favor? Just, just take a look in the envelope real quick before you burn me. This is like the booyah moment, like dang. Judah is about to eat his words. Tamar is on her way to be burned. That's how close it was. Hey, uh, before I do that, Judah, just... This is the man who impregnated me. You can picture Judah opening an envelope or something. Uh, I think I have seen these before. Look at verse 26. This is interesting, though. Verse 26 is a turning point. It's hard because we don't, sometimes when we see something this wicked, we don't want a turning point. Like, let's end it by burning Judah. Look at verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, 
she is more righteous than I. Now, to be fair, that's not saying much. (laughs) She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. He goes back to what the original agreement was. Yeah, that is a dumb moment. And he did not know her again. Now, uh, this is a very important turning point. Most theologians and commentators believe that this is true repentance. That for the first time, we see a turning with Judah. He's been a real bonehead from everything else we've seen. It would have been very different had he said he was sorry and then kept sleeping with her and other prostitutes. But what we see are two important things for the first time. Confession and repentance. He did not know her again. And actually from this point, we see a change in the life of Judah. We see some movement that's healthy. But up until this point, not a whole lot of redemptive stuff there. Um, well, he could have tried to cover it up. I mean, that's one thing that we need to consider is that, oddly enough, if your sin becomes exposed, uh, you would do well to follow Judah's example. He doesn't try to explain away uh, the sin by saying he was lonely. Wife died. Surely you guys can get that, right? He didn't try to, um, to minimize it. He fesses up and he changes his ways. Again, that's not very savory to us. We probably think, ah, Someone needs to just punch him in the face or something. Slap him. Get his attention. He fesses up and he changes his ways. I think there's an encouragement here to be mindful when you find yourself trying to explain or legitimize or minimize your sin. If you find yourself saying, well, you know, the reason I did that or the reason I said that or the reason I keep doing that is that just in my mind, it's you're explaining it, you're minimizing it, and you're trying to legitimize it. And you should do what he did. You know what he said? I am not righteous. That's a good response, especially when you're caught in sin like this. I'm not righteous. Look at verses 27 through 30. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Here we go again. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as the hand drew back, as he drew back, this is crazy. I was there for the birth of both my children. I would freak out if I saw that. (laughs) When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife tied a a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, kind of like, "Uh uh-uh, dibs, I got this. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. (laughs) Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Twins struggling in the womb is a continued theme. Here what we need to see is that it, it's through the offspring of Perez that will one day come a, a redeemer who is Christ. So in this union between Judah and Tamar, that's where Jesus comes from. Does that bother anybody? Dare any of us say, not my God. No. He comes from a royal lineage of pure, pureness. Moses has done a peculiar thing by including this chapter in the text. By God's design and his breathed out word, the greatest disgrace of the family is exposed. That's how one guy says it. The greatest disgrace of the family is exposed. What's he referring to? He's referring to incestual prostitution. 
Oh, yeah, let me tell you my family story. Um, way back, there was this ancestral prostitution thing, and then later on it was Jesus. You wouldn't include that if you told the story. You would conveniently leave that part out. Christ clothed himself in our flesh with the design of making himself of no reputation. He wasn't born with a great reputation. The purpose of this is that we would be content with Christ alone. Seek Christ only. Christ derives no glory from his ancestors, especially Judah. All of his glory has existed before any of his ancestors breathed their first breath. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and his glory was perfect before any of this happened. Moses deliberately robs the Jews of any arrogance and hope attached to their lineage. You heard that arrogance when they were speaking to Jesus, and he said, you need to know the truth, and it'll set you free. And they're free? Ha! Let's look at my lineage. Christ's glory is not contingent upon the glory of Judah. Got to see that. Sometimes we have these songs that speak of, oh God of Jacob, oh Lion of Judah, and we have a tendency to maybe want to escalate Jacob and Judah, like, hey, should we write a song about them too? When the reality is his glory is not contingent upon theirs. Christ redeems the past, present, and future. So it is, in fact, Judah's glory that's completely contingent upon Christ's glory. Jesus Christ is not the pinnacle of a noble, regal, and respectable bloodline. Rather, he is the Redeemer whose grace reaches very, very low. He's the light in a lineage of darkness. His righteousness is not an apex of the righteousness of his forefathers. His forefathers and all of us after have no righteousness unless it is imputed to us by God in Christ. When you hear that he eventually came from this union, it doesn't, it doesn't damage his name. It makes us realize how great he really is. Be encouraged also that this is what God does. This is what God does. He takes broken families and wayward, self-serving perverts and liars and murderers, and he redeems them for his glory. It's very real. Again, you could look at Judah and just think, oh, I'd never would be a person like that. It's pretty easy to make these horrible decisions. God redeems for his glory. If we chose the tribe out of the 12 by whom Christ would come, it's not likely after Genesis 38 read aloud that we would select Judah. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So by no means do we keep sinning. But we surrender to the one in whom redemption rests, and we trust him completely. Why? Because he's trustworthy. And we look to him for fulfillment because there is fulfillment, right fulfillment, holy fulfillment. We look to him for purpose because there is purpose. And we look to him for direction because he gives it. It is in this backdrop of darkness that we see the bright beauty of our great Redeemer. Genesis 38 is all about Jesus. You probably, if I just read it out loud and said, okay, what do you think? You, it probably wouldn't be, oh, that's all about Jesus. He is so good. You'd just be, Judah's disgusting. And Ur and Onan. We don't even know what happened with Sheila. Um, next week, we're going to go back to the life of Joseph. But it's important for us to, to have had this chapter, even though it's awkward and weird, um, because it does highlight the greatness of our God. Let's pray. 
Lord, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for the uh, burden, good burden that you have placed on this body not to skip over pieces of Scripture that are unsavory and uncomfortable. God, we make no excuses for you. You are perfect. Your design is more desirable than any design. Your ways are higher than our ways and anyone else's ways. The wages of sin is death. Your wages are not. God, you are so incredibly good. And I'm thankful that you have laid this burden on us to really see that all Scripture is breathed out by God and to see that even in hard chapters like this, I've heard people tell stories about how in grade school they were reading through Genesis and they just skipped over 38 and a few other chapters because it was odd. I'm thankful that as, as adults we don't have to do that. I'm thankful that we can have eyes to see and ears to hear and that we can take a chapter where we see such wickedness, and, and it doesn't just depress us and we leave here feeling like we need a shower, but it encourages us that we have such a great Redeemer who's not dependent upon His ancestors, who's not dependent upon a lineage, who's not dependent upon the story before Him. You are our great Redeemer. You are perfectly pure. Without you, we have no righteousness. Lord, we thank you for a mighty work that you do that's far outside of us. I pray that we would walk in the truth. I pray that we would, that we would really just bask in and savor the beauties of, of who you are and how you work and how you have been taking crooked families like this for generations and changing them into God-fearing families, that you would be our fear and our dread and our sanctuary. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.